heroes are an inspiring group of people. Every one of them, from the larger-than-life comic book heroes you see on the big silver screen to the everyday heroes that let us live the privileged lives we do. Every hero has a story to tell. The doctor saving lives at your local hospital. The war veteran down the street who risked his lives for our freedom. The police officers and firefighters who risk their safety to ensure ours. Every hero is special and every story worth telling. But there is one class of heroes that I think is often ignored. The entrepreneur. The creator. The producer. The ones who look at the problems in this world and think to themselves, you know what? I can fix that. I can help people. And I can make a difference. Then they go out and do exactly that by creating a new product or introducing a new service. Some go on to change the world. Others make a world of difference to their customers. Welcome to The Hero Show. Join us as we pull back the masks of the world's finest heropreneurs and learn the secrets to their powers, their success, and their influence. So you can use those secrets to attract more sales, make more money, and experience more freedom in your business. I'm your host, Richard Matthews, and we are on in three, two, one. Hello and welcome back to The Hero Show. My name's uh, Richard Matthews, and I am on the line today with Scott Harvey. Scott, are you there? I am here, yes, sir. Awesome. Glad to have you here, Scott. Let me do a quick introduction for you, and then we'll get in and start talking about your story and entrepreneurship. Sounds so great. Scott Harvey spent 20 years as an FBI-trained hostage negotiator, so he's an actual real-world superhero, and a public information officer doing hundreds of on-camera media interviews um, when he served as a sergeant in the um, police world. He now speaks to organizations about high-impact communication with over 500 paid presentations to over 100,000 people. Scott has learned the power of communication and storytelling to connect with people, build trust, and drive sales. So what I want to talk about real quick, Scott, is what you're known for now. Why is it that people hire you? Why do they bring you on stage to speak? Um, and, you know, what is it that you, uh, you teach when you do that? It's a great question. And I've, you know, known for speaking and, and coaching right now, more so the speaking than the coaching. And, you know, the people that contact me are wanting one of two things, because I speak to really kind of two different buckets of people. One is middle and high school students, which I do a lot on schools. Most of those are centered around responsible use of technology, which is 100% of the communication lane that, that I've kind of positioned myself in. And I'm, I'm teaching students about you know, social media, cyberbullying, sexting, all of the stuff that they kind of figured out on their own. You know, when I worked for the police department, in addition to the negotiation stuff, I taught the D.A.R.E. program, I supervised school resource officers. So I'm in the schools all day, every day when I was working for the police department, when I wasn't, you know, answering other calls. And so that was a kind of a natural outflow of that. Uh, and then for corporations and businesses, what I speak to them about is, is high impact communication. It's how to, you know, deal with employees and customers, even under a stressful situation, how to tell your story, even when your story is not popular. Uh, I think in the, in today's communication world, when there is a lack of communication, everybody becomes suspect of what's going on. And so we have no excuse not to communicate today. But when everything hits the fan, for lack of a better term, companies tend to shut down, uh, which to me is the most damaging thing they can do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I have, um, I have an interesting, I'm not sure why, why this uh, is this way, but uh, I actually still remember from fifth grade my D.A.R.E. officer. His name was Officer Carrillo. Very um, cool. And for whatever reason, like, he, uh, his, his name, his face is stuck in my head my entire life. I still remember um, everything we went over in that, uh, in that class in the fifth grade. Um, and you know, we didn't live in a small town or anything. So, mm -hmm. you know, there was 100,000 people. So there was a lot of cops. But 
I ran into Officer Creo maybe three or four growth for every day, like getting the uh, dare program stuff. So you probably are having a bigger impact with kids than you might realize. You Uh, you know, it's (laughs) funny. I have run into students before who are like 26 years old because I had them when they were 10, 27, 28 now. And, and they're like, you know, you were my dare officer. You probably don't remember me. I'm like, well, you were 10 last time we met. So I I don't know your name, but you'll have to remember. You don't look anything at all. No. You're a lot bigger now and a lot older and you have a beard yes. and all of that fun Pu- stuff. Puberty has changed you a bit. It has. It has. But it's it's cool that they still remember me and that you know we still cross paths in, in the big world today. Yeah, I actually, I specifically remember one instance when, um, you know, I'm, are, you, are you in California at all? I'm not very often, no. I've been out there a few okay, times so for conferences. Are, are you from... Are you familiar with uh, in the in in cop terms the California roll, oh, which yes. is you know yes. yeah when you stop at a stop sign and roll through it. Correct. Um, one one time my uh, my dad rolled through a stop sign that uh, Officer Creo just happened to be uh, watching that day. Right. And pulled pulled my dad over um, and was like, "Hey, do you realize you rolled through that stop sign?" Um, and while that was happening, um, and you know we were chatting back and forth because like he had just topped there. I'm like, so I knew him and, you know, he had, he had met my dad there. So he was chatting with my dad or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And as he was doing that, we had four kids rode across in front of the car that didn't have their helmets on their bikes. Okay. <laughs> so, so he stopped the, uh, he, st- he stopped all the kids and he was like, um, he came back over to us. He was like, I'm sorry, I'm letting you off on the, on the California roll because I got to give tickets to all these kids who are not have their helmets on. That's more important. Right. <laughs> so anyways, that's, I just stories that pop into my head from, uh, from my, my dare officer. Absolutely. Uh, but I did have, I did have one other question for you on, 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 uh, and this is, this is just personal because I have a bunch of kids. I've got mm-hmm. four kids my, on my own. Um, and I've just, I'm curious how, how this plays out because my oldest is just getting to the point where he's starting to text and talk to his friends a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, puberty is just around the corner, which means all that, like, I have to start teaching responsibility with communication and sexting and all that stuff. And like, yes. what is, what kind of advice do you give parents who are in that situation where like they're getting, their kids are just getting to the point where they have to start using this technology and, um, you know, you don't want to, uh, what's the word? You don't want to shield them from it. Like you don't right. want to disadvantage them by not letting them learn how to use it responsibly. So how do, how do you, how do you teach that? Or what are some of your encouragements for, for parents who are that area. So what I do with parents, you know, my kids are 19 and, and 14. And so I'm in the middle of the, these trenches right now, you know, that's where a lot of my material comes from. But the biggest thing I equate it to is teaching a kid to drive a car. You know, in the state of Kentucky, mm-hmm. where I live, once a kid turns 16, they have to spend six months with someone over the age of 21 in the passenger seat of the car, and they have to accumulate, it's like 60 hours of driving time, they have to log it, it's, it's a lot because driving is super important. And if we don't teach them how to drive safely, they're going to crash and they could kill themselves or other people. And I equate the same thing with technology. You know, we've got to stop handing four-year-olds iPhones and letting them figure it out on their own and assuming 10 years later when they're 14 that they know everything they need to know. We've not taught Mm -hmm. them anything about that. My life would have been a lot less stressful if I never had to teach my oldest daughter to drive a car. Because that six months was a stressful time. <laughs> you have to your prayers. Yes, even though she's a great driver and I trust her completely, it just was stressful. But 
it would cripple her if I didn't teach her how to drive. And technology to me is kind of the same way. We, it'd be a lot less stressful if our kids did no technology. But there comes a point when they start being teenagers where that technology is a necessary part of their life. And we have to, mm -hmm. instead of just throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, we have to teach them how to responsibly use it. Uh, and one of the biggest things I tell parents is, you know, if it's a phone, a tablet, whatever, you paid for it, it's yours. It's on your mm -hmm. billing plan. You set the rules for it and they're welcome to follow those rules or not have the technology. You know, we just have to step into that yeah. authority role. And one of the biggest one for parents is that technology charges in our bedroom at night. No student mm -hmm. needs 24 hour access to their technology because the brain research is pretty clear without an eight hour break of the drama that is social media, they'll start getting anxiety, depression, PTSD, all of these things that, you know, my brain needs an eight hour break. So my phone goes into night mode at a certain time and eight hours later in the morning, it wakes back up. And the only way that you can get through that is to physically call me old school, which means it's an emergency, right? And so yeah. text, text, notifications, all that stuff don't make any noise in the middle of the night for me. And if I need that, of course, kids need that too. And we have, they're not going to want that, but they would also eat candy every day for every meal if we let them. So we have to set parameters that keep them safe. You know, or, or mine would do a macaroni. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, so we, we do the same thing in our house where, um, you know, the, the technology, at least recently, and you probably hear my kids screaming in the background, they're crying about something. Oh, that's the, fine. Uh, <laughs> the, um, the, it's getting easier to manage, right? Mm -hmm. Like with things like on Apple's system, screen time now, you can actually shut their devices off at certain yes. times and like have time limits for certain stuff, which is really nice. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been encouraging friends and other family members to make sure they learn how they how to use those things. Yes. Right? Because they're not as a, it's not as apparent, I guess. You have to actually like look for it to turn them on and actually use mm -hmm. them. Um, yeah. So, you know, I try to make sure that we're using all that stuff um, and making sure. But then also like, you know, particularly having discussions with my son about, you know, like it doesn't matter who you're talking to. You don't give them your address. You don't tell them where you're at, that kind of stuff. And like, and, and just being safe with, mm -hmm. um, you know, at, at this point, everyone he's talking to, we, we approve, right? Because mm -hmm. he's using mm -hmm. things like Facebook Messenger but right. even when they're friends and friends, parents and stuff like that, it's like, these are the rules. Like, mm -hmm. and you follow these rules in a safe environment. So when you get to an environment that is, you know, like an open road, you know what the rules are. Right. right. And, you know, even before a kid starts using social media and technology, I recommend parents sit down with their kids and, and surf their social media with their kid and show them posts and texts and tweets and, you know, ask them, what do you think is going to come from this? What do you, how do you read this? You know, what kind of attention is this person going to get? Because there are tweets out there designed only to get attention. There are Instagram posts designed to only get attention. And when we start exposing our kids to that and, and unpacking it with them, they'll understand a little bit more when they start to use it. It's the same reason that, you know, I would tell my kids about turn signals and stop signs when they were 10, because when they were 16, they would draw yeah. back on that information that they learned when they were 10 to be a, a safer driver. So I think you can't have discussions too yeah, soon. I, uh, and I think you have to have, I have a, a, go ahead. I say I have a current problem with my uh, two and a half year old who knows what the red, yellow and green lights are. Um, oh yes. 
and has become quite the backseat driver. Um, and like, <laughs> yes. as soon as the light turned green, she's like, go daddy, go. And I'm like, there's cars in front of me, honey. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and like, she'll get all upset if I don't step on the gas the moment it turns green. <laughs> yes. She's got places to go. <laughs> yeah. So I totally, totally get that. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense to, to actually like show them what you're doing with social media and how you use it. Um, and it's really interesting because like for me particularly, um, I was like my graduating class um, in high school, I graduated college before Facebook or social media like hit. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, I graduated college in 2007 mm-hmm. and um, YouTube went public in 2006 mm-hmm. and Facebook went um, like started becoming available to colleges in like 2006 and it wasn't you know, so it was like barely brand new. So I basically graduated college without social media. But my brother, who was three years behind me, mm-hmm. grew up in high school and in college with social media. It completely changed the world. Like it's mm-hmm. very different um, mm-hmm. educational experience. And like it's a, um, it's vastly different for our children, right? Because mm-hmm. they're growing up in a place where, you know, they have access to all the world's information all the time at their fingertips. Um, and it's interesting because everything all the way down to like, how do you educate your kids in a world where they have access to everything? Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, instead of like memorizing stuff, teaching them how to, how to think about accessing information that's already there. Right. And teaching them right. how to think in terms of search queries and all sorts of stuff. Like it's, I don't know, it's just a really interesting discussion and thing that as parents, we have to learn how to navigate all of this um, for yeah. our children. Um, yeah. And it's not something that, like we can ask our parents because they didn't do it. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, we have no excuse to not know as parents, we can Google anything. Google is very intuitive. You can type a question into Google, it will give you the answers. But, you know, we're an iPhone family, we're a Mac family. And so we've only ever had iPhones. And the nice thing about that from a parenting standpoint is we, we have one uh, Apple ID that allows for purchases. Uh, my kids don't hmm. have, my youngest does not have the password for that. She has to send me a request for anything that she wants to download, including free stuff. So that being said, she has nothing on her phone that either my wife or I has not approved, you know, even free stuff. Yeah. And the 19 year old, she does have the password now because she's an adult and I trust her. Uh, but at the same time, I have every one of her social media passwords, login information in an envelope that's sealed in my desk drawer. And I told her, I'm not going to go into your social media, but God forbid, if you ever go missing in college, your phone is going to be with you. And so I can't access your social media without those login information. And with that login information, it does allow me to see who have you been DMing, what plans did you make, that kind of stuff that I can start putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Now, my 14 year old, because her phone charges in our bedroom at night, the unwritten rule is we can open it anytime we want to. My wife checks it periodically, checks the text messages, makes sure she's acting appropriately. And as she gets older, that will become less and less. You know, As she shows she's responsible and that kind of stuff, we'll give more rope out. But we can always pull that rope back in. It was about, Christmas of my oldest daughter's senior year when in high school when we allowed her to keep her phone in her bedroom at night uh, because she was in six months going to be getting ready to go to college and on her own and she'd been responsible. So, but the understanding is during that six months at home, if it's an issue, you know, we can pull it back in. Uh, so it's just have to have these conversations and as they show they're responsible, you allow them more freedom like anything else they've ever done. Yeah. I actually remember 
my drive to college, my mom went with us to take us to college and cell phones were not really a thing yet. Mm-hmm. They had just started, started coming out. They're like the ones that like slid apart, mm-hmm. like the candy bar phones. Yes. And my mom was like, you need to get a phone if you're going to college. And I was like, no, I don't. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm not buying a phone. And she was like, you have to have a phone. You're going 2,500 miles away. Like, like this is a thing you have to have. Right. And I told her, I was like, I'm not spending my money on a phone. And so like on the drive out to college, she handed me a box with a phone in it. <laughs> she was like, I bought you a phone. You have to have a phone. <laughs> like if you're going to college. So like, the, yeah. it's just interesting. The discussion, you know, 15 years later is just mm-hmm. vastly different. Yeah. Right. Cause like our, our kids nowadays would never think about not going somewhere without their phone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, you graduated in 2007, you said from college. Yeah, from college, yeah. Okay, see, I graduated college in 97, so only 10 years before you. Uh, And when I look at, Mm -hmm. I didn't have a cell phone in college. I knew nobody that had one except my my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. She had a bag phone for her drive to- Yeah, I was like, weren't those the the big ones? The zipper that that plugged in. Plugged yeah. into a cigarette lighter and was attached with a cord. I saw those. I mean, that was only 10 years before you. So that gives you an idea of how much technology has changed. We had phones hanging on our dorm room, the old landline, mm-hmm. and you called someone's dorm room. And if you didn't get it, you just didn't get a hold of them. And that was only 10 yeah. years that that changed between you at getting a cell phone as you went off to college and me going through all of college without a cell phone. Yeah. And like, um, you know, I graduated college and a couple of years later, had my first kid and, you know, he's 10 now. And mm-hmm. by the time he was six months old, he was using a cell phone, right? He wasn't right. using his own. He was right. playing with mine, but like sure. he'd figured out how to open it and, you know, and mm-hmm. take pictures and that kind of, that. and that's like his baseline is so different than ours. Yes. Um, and it's interesting to try and try and, uh, I don't know, to, to teach from something that we had to learn as adults to Mm -hmm. something that they're just growing up with. It's really interesting. And I tell people, I think our kids will do a better job with their kids when it comes to technology, because our kids are digital natives. We had to learn Mm -hmm. it, you know, and they're going to understand better than we do. As adults. Yes. (laughs) Yes. They're going to understand better than we do the dangers and the pitfalls that we didn't fully understand. You know, that being said, I've immersed myself in social media and technology so that I can know how to responsibly teach others how to use it. But I'm the exception. I realize that, you know, most people aren't as plugged in as I am. Yeah, that is absolutely true. I do the same thing because I'm a, you know, I'm a digital marketing guy, right? So like I'm constantly on this stuff and learning and keeping up on the bleeding edge of it because that's what my clients pay me for. Right. Right. Um, So that's uh, it's the same kind of thing. So I, you know, I, I feel like I have a bit of an advantage with over other parents, which is why I try to, uh, you know, whenever we're sitting around the fire talking with my friends, like, Hey, did you know you could do this with screen time or you could do that or you know, like other things that you can, they can take, take advantage of, but it's cool that you're out actually teaching that. Yeah. Um, which leads me sort of to my next question, which mm-hmm. is your origin story, right? Every hero has their origin stories where you started to realize that you were different, that maybe you had superpowers, that maybe you could actually teach people something sort of, how did that happen? How did you go from being a hostage negotiator to being someone who is doing public speaking and teaching about communication? So when I started in the police department back in uh, 1997 is when I hired in, I um, hired in for every reason that everybody ever joins the police department to help people to, you know, be the person that rides in the shiny uniform and saves the day. You know, all of the superhero fantasies that we have as kids were a, a legitimate reason to get into the job. And I didn't realize, I guess, going into it as much that law enforcement is a cleanup business for the most part. 
Nobody ever calls us when they're having a great day. Nobody ever calls us to tell us, keep up the good work. You know, they call us when it has hit the fan, when the wheels have fallen off. And, you know, I got a little tired of cleanup very, very quickly. Uh, you can only load so many people into body bags after they overdose and clean up so many wrecks before yeah. you start trying to get upstream of the problem. And so about two, three years into my full-time law enforcement, I, I started getting involved in the D.A.R.E. program as a way to try to educate and to show students that you can make better choices regardless of what your parents are doing, that kind of stuff. And, you know, D.A.R.E. just kind of morphed into, you know, teaching a lot. I was teaching our Citizens Police Academy. I was doing a lot of teaching. And out of that, I was attending conferences. And at those conferences, I was sitting in other people's classes as they taught and I was learning and I was watching people speak for a living. And then I started to realize this is actually a thing that people do. And as I researched it, I had a, a friend of mine that was organizing a state conference for there for safe schools. And she had one of her breakout session people back out about a month before the event. And she contacted me. She says, do you have anything you can teach in a breakout session I've had somebody back out, love for you, because I was going to be attending the conference anyways. So I said, yeah, I've been researching a lot of bullying, uh, because 10 years ago, that was a very hot topic. We're trying to figure out what to do about it. And so I said, I could talk about bullying. I could put yeah. a presentation together. And so I did that. And those people that were in that presentation were school principals, school resource officers, guidance counselors from across the state of Kentucky. And they came up to me afterwards and they said, we would love for you to come and teach this to our faculty at our school. Uh, and I said, well, you know, you would have to at least cover my expenses. And so that's how things started. And then that turned into student presentations. And I always knew when I hired in at the police department at 23 years old that I was signing in for a 20-year hazardous duty retirement. So I knew at 43, I would be eligible to retire. And I also knew that at 43, I wasn't going to be sitting at the house just collecting a retirement check. I needed a second gig. And, you know, back in 2010, when I started speaking at these conferences, it just became a, a second job that I knew I could do and, and could do well. And I spent about nine years using vacation time from the police department to speak all over the country, to do student presentations mostly and uh, conferences here and there. But, you know, just kind of honing that skill and, and using it as an extension of what I was already doing in D.A.R.E. I was already helping people and the, the student presentations and the faculty trainings I did was just an extension of that. And, you know, having people come up to me afterwards, connect with me on social media, telling me that, you know, they really enjoyed, they never thought of the things we talked about, they're going to make some changes. It was, it was, you know, the time that I realized this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, you know, the 20 years of law enforcement experience, while a great job, and I don't begrudge that, it really gave me the stories, the credibility, and the D.A.R.E. program gave me the chops, so to speak, to transfer this to a, a full-time career. And when I retired from the police okay. department is when I launched kind of the corporate side of what I do uh, with the hostage negotiation stuff that I was trained in. I communication is everything to me. I've got a podcast called the Speaking of Harvey podcast that helps people grow and launch their speaking business. Because if I did it, anybody can add speaking to what they are already doing. And communication is to me what is going to set our kids apart these days. If we teach our kids to be good communicators face to face, 
then they're going to be head and shoulders above their competition because the rest of their competition is buried in their phones. And when we're at a restaurant, I have, I have mentioned that more than once to my kids. Uh, it's huge when, and you know, I get it for them. It's easier if they don't communicate, but we go to a restaurant today, even, and my 14 year old would rather I order for her. And I'm like, this is a, a waiter, waitress. This is an adult. You can make eye contact. You can have a conversation. You can ask if you can substitute this and that, which is weird for a 14 year old to want to change something, but we've got to teach them to communicate face to face. Uh, my mm -hmm. oldest daughter about two years ago when she was a senior in high school, she actually went three months needing a haircut because neither my wife or I would call the salon and schedule her an appointment. And she kept asking me, she said, why don't, why can't I just text an appointment? Why can't I just schedule online? I'm like, it's a phone call. Just call these people, ask to schedule it. And you know, she was a great communicator, but it Promise was just- they won't bite. Yeah, I know it was a weird thing for her and she's very outgoing and she's very uh, extroverted actually. But for some reason, having a phone call with a stranger making a request of them was anxiety producing for her. So I just said, I'm not doing it. I don't need my haircut. You do. So when you get up the gumption to call them, <laughs> then you'll get your haircut. I mean, I'll pay for it, but I'm not making the appointment for you. And I, we just have to push them in <laughs> nice. these areas. We have to push them in these areas so that they are forced to communicate. Uh, because whenever we're in a restaurant, a store or something, and I see the, the stereotypical, cause they're not every teenager, but this is what we think that is mumbling is not making eye contact is on their phone before you walk up. Whenever we walk away, I look at my girls and I say, do you see where the bar is? You only have to be better than that to stand out in the workforce. Yeah. And I think, yeah, we do. You know, if we're teaching communication to our kids, it's going to benefit them and say what you want about teaching them the technology. They know the technology. They're lacking the people mm -hmm. skills. So let's ramp up the people skills and let's make our kids better communicators, our businesses better communicators, because if I have nothing to hide, then I ought to be the one communicating. So there's two things I want to point out about that that I think are mm -hmm. really, really important. One of them is the idea that, uh, you know, making, making your kids a better communicator is absolutely going to give them a leg up over everyone else. And especially if they ever want to get into entrepreneurship mm -hmm. um, and you know, it doesn't really matter what they're doing, but they have to learn to communicate. Um, one of the things we, we do similar things, like my, my kids, as soon as they can talk, they order their own food at restaurants. Mm -hmm. Right. And I generally have to translate toddler speak for the waiter, but yes. I, I make my toddlers order their own food. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and we travel full time. So my, my oldest, he's got a lot more freedom than the younger girls. And whenever we get into a new campground, he grabs his walkie talkie and his bike and he goes up and down the, uh, the, uh, aisles, wherever we're staying, looking for other kids' bikes and then goes and introduces himself to the kids. Right. Nice. nice. <laughs> so, so lots of communication practice. And I talk to him all the time. He's like, yeah, we had the biggest struggle that we've had is with learning to type. Mm -hmm. um, because he's looking at me, he's like, why do I need to learn to type? He's like, I can just talk things to my phone. And I'm like, mm -hmm. that's all well and good that you can talk things to your phone. And I'm sure like at some point, the vocal and output from computers is going to be good enough that you can do everything you want with it, but it, it's mm -hmm. not there yet. You mm -hmm. might be the last generation that has to learn how to type, but you have to learn how to type yeah. and like learn how to communicate and learn how to write. Like his mom makes him write in cursive and stuff like mm -hmm. that for his schoolwork. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, 
so you know things that they have to learn how to do um and point out to them like the kind of work that i do is all communication right like mm -hmm. i get paid for writing and for talking and communicating with people yes um so there's a lot of education that goes into that um but the other side of it one of the things that i've been pointing out to my kids um and i'm curious if you're if you're doing the same thing right the most most of the children that you see and most of the what is it, generation z is what they're calling the uh, the young, mm -hmm. the digital natives mm -hmm. um they have that problem with communication and they are looking for um solutions to problems like why can't i just text to make a hair appointment mm -hmm. and to me that screams opportunity for someone who knows how to communicate yes right yes. because that means if you can just off the top of my head, create a app or something that you can then go and sell to hair salons that lets people text appointments mm -hmm. because your ability to communicate, you can take advantage of that opportunity that other people are looking for and yes. create wealth and prosperity that the people who are wanting that are unwilling to communicate won't ever have that opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. I think it's great. And, and, you know, to that point, you know, my, my barber has an app that I schedule my appointments through the app and I love it. It's easier for me. I pay through the app, kind of like Uber. I don't ever trans transfer money when I go to the barber, he's paid through the app and he doesn't have to stop cutting hair to make appointments. So it's, it's a win-win mm -hmm. and I have no problem with that. But what I got onto her about is these are the rules of the game that you have to play if you want to get your hair cut at the time you know, until it changes, these are what we have to do. And even though I, I don't communicate with him until I get there, when I get in the barber's chair, that's all we do is talk. And I pitched him an idea mm -hmm. the other day, because I, I coach small business people now. And, and I told him, I said, you know, the holy grail of, of business today is the membership. I said, if you can get a monthly membership yeah. to your barber shop, I said, because you know, he, That'd he be does, awesome. he's old school. He straight razors the edges. He gives me a razor part. You know, when he, when he cuts it, he does a great job. And I said, the razor edges and the razor part last for about a week before that kind of grows to where you can't tell that's what it is. I said, if I could get a haircut and two touch-ups a month, I would pay you monthly to be a member of your barbershop to allow me to just schedule those things, come in here. And even if I don't come in, you're still getting paid and I'm not mad about it. Those are the conversations where you see a need, you pitch it to the person and it's through the mm. communication where you can improve their business, where I can be seen as kind of a guy that has the ideas. Uh, even though, and I told him, I said, you're, he goes, well, how would I do that? I said, well, I'm paying you through Stripe. I promise you Stripe has a membership aspect that you could be using instead of, or in addition to the app you're already using. You know, it's just a matter of yeah. seeing the need, like you said, pitching it to somebody who had never thought of it from a customer standpoint and saying, this makes me happy as a customer, makes you happy as a business owner. Why are we not doing this? I had a, uh, a chiropractor who set up a chiropractic membership where instead of like doing the $1,800 for, you know, adjustments over six months or whatever, who's like, Hey, we do an all you can eat chiropractic membership. You just come in once a week and we adjust yep. you and your family and whatnot. And yep. I mean, he's got one of the largest practices in the, uh, in the city and yep. talking you know i'm in the business community pretty often and like the other chiropractors were all like upset and like that guy's not a real chiropractor he does it wrong and i'm like <laughs> yeah he does it wrong all the way to the bank and his he's winning love the crap out of him yes yeah. <laughs> we have membership car washes so, here we have car washes yeah. where you pay a monthly membership fee and you can go as many times as you want and just like the gym membership 
you know, they are wanting you to pay and, and not come really. I mean, to an extent, mm-hmm. they, they want you to be healthier, but if you're not coming, you're not putting wear and tear on their equipment. And a membership is one of those funny things today where we're not going to cancel it because I just might use it. You know, if we actually pulled mm-hmm. how many memberships we're paying, Netflix, Hulu, you know, all of these things we're paying for that we may or may not be using. Yeah. But when it goes to cancel it, but I might use that. So I'm not going to cancel it. It's only five, six dollars a month, whatever it is. And so if you can get our business on a membership type status, there's a lot of resistance to cancel memberships because it's almost admitting failure. I'm not going to cancel my mm-hmm. gym membership because then I'm going to actually have to admit to myself that I'm not going to be fit ever. Uh, and if, you know, if I'm signed on with a coaching client, if they cancel that membership, then they're on their own and they may or may not decide to do that. There's a lot of resistance with canceling a membership. So I think from a business standpoint, it's, it's the next big thing. Yeah. Um, and big companies are pushing people that direction, right? Apple is, uh, is really pushing the subscription model for apps. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I, I have some thoughts on that. I, I have a, I, I get the feeling that people have a membership threshold beyond which they're not going to continue to add memberships. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see over the next couple of years, what types of memberships at what levels really stick with people. Mm-hmm. Um, because like literally everything is moving to membership models, like, you know, Starbucks and like the apps that you update on your phone, the music that you listen to, mm-hmm. um, you know, even Apple just released the other day, a, a gaming system, like what is the Apple arcade? Mm-hmm. Um, you have unlimited access to video games, um, from, mm-hmm. you know, well-respected developers and stuff like that. And they're turning everything into memberships. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. And it's interesting to see where that's going and what people's appetite for memberships is going to be. Um, but I don't, I don't know where that is and whether that's good or bad. But I think it's, you know, like social media sort of took over. I feel like nowadays is the membership. Memberships yeah. are the new, the new big thing. Yep. Uh, yep. So what I want to do is move on just a little bit and start talking about your personal superpowers, right? It's what mm-hmm. you do or build or offer this world that helps solve problems for people. Um, and if, if you could narrow down like the one thing that you're really skilled at that you think really helps people, you know, when you're speaking and you're coaching, what do you think that would be? You know, I've kind of touched on the fact that, you know, I feel like communication is my niche and and the student presentations fit into that, you know, how we're communicating online and, and the corporate presentations fit into that, that even when what we're doing is not popular, we have to be communicating about it. As a public information officer, I was constantly communicating to the media, even when, or especially when there wasn't an emergency, so that they got to trust me, like me, know me, so that when there was an emergency and I didn't have a ton of time to talk, I already had the relationship built with them where that wasn't weird. Because they knew, usually I'm talking, if he's not, he must be busy and he will come and talk to us as soon as he has a chance. And so I think communication is definitely my niche. It's what I do. Uh, the speaking, the podcasting, the coaching that I do, I facilitate a mastermind. It's all based around communication. So when you think about communication as um, like in terms of a, uh, a superpower, I'm curious, mm-hmm. you know, the, the uh, superpowers tend to come from either, you know, it was accidental, right? Like Spider-Man got bit by a spider and it became Spider-Man or, 
there's something that you really work at, like, you know, Batman becoming, you know, a ninja, essentially, right? He's mm -hmm. been in years of effort to do that. Would you, would you say your ability with communication is sort of, you know, where does that fall for you? It's a great question. And I've never really thought about it. But when you started talking about it, I feel like it was something that I had a natural inclination towards, but I definitely honed over the years. I mean, I was a, a middle child. I had an older brother and a younger brother. So I was the peacekeeper, the deal maker, the negotiator, <laughs> yeah. even when we were little. And so I've been doing this, you know, my whole life. And I just developed, I think, whether it was nature or nurture, I feel like I had a little bit of both. You know, I feel like I was born with this ability to communicate. And, you know, even sitting in middle school, I remember sitting in an auditorium when we had a speaker and saying to myself, that would be awesome. If you were on stage communicating and people were listening and you had a cool story to tell, that would be awesome. And my wife and I have talked about this. She thinks everybody had that thought when they were in middle school and the speaker came in and that's possible. But I also believe that I was kind of given a, a glimpse behind the curtain of what my future would look like, but I needed to accomplish some things along the way that would give me the stories and the, and the ability to tell those stories in a way that was believable and useful for my audience. So I feel like it kind of set on early and then I, I spent years honing that. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, a, I'm not sure why, but it, a conversation I had with uh, my wife the other day, um, we were at McDonald's and, um, you know, cause we were just in a hurry to get some stuff and um, a, a group of, I don't know, young teenagers um, came in on their skateboards or scooters or whatever they call them. Mm -hmm. And one of the kids was, uh, um, was clearly the leader of the pack, so to speak, and was um, describing all of his various adventures with his friends um, with curse words. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't, I don't particularly have a problem with curse words one way or the other. Right. Um, but what cracked me up about that, I was like, it's like, you haven't earned them yet. <laughs> yeah, like you, right. have, you, you haven't earned those curse words yet until you know like when when my wife says the f word she's pushed four children out of her genitals like she's that's earned right. that that's right that's <laughs> right like yeah yeah you have, um, you have so, no ability to use those yeah so you yeah. like you haven't earned it yet so like in, in the same light you know you want to be a public speaker but you had to go through some of the things to earn the stories to get up and actually share and have the credibility and stuff like that. Um, because, you know, unless you're doing something cool at, you know, at 14 years old, you probably don't have, you don't have the stories. You haven't earned the, uh, earned the place out there to, to speak and teach. Right. Um, so sort of my, my follow on question to that idea about superpowers is when it comes to communication specifically, I know you're, you're in the game of teaching other people how to communicate. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, do you think communication is something that is um, being, getting good at communication is something that's available to everyone, whether or not they possess the natural talent that, you know, you or I might've been born with and we've honed. Um, but if they come, you know, if they're coming to the game with nothing and, you know, completely introverted and don't talk to people ever? Is it something that they can hone and build and learn and become great at? I think everyone can improve. Uh, I don't think that it would be fair to take a really introverted person who, you know, functions well in a one-on-one -on -one environment and put them onto a stage. I think that that would set them up for failure and that's really not how they're wired. Uh, but I think we can all improve our communication. And so regardless of where you're starting from, 
you can do some things to get better. Uh, the, the ultimate goal doesn't have to be a stage. The ultimate goal may be just a, a cocktail party or a get together with friends where you're not so non-communicative that you're seen as standoffish and stuck up or, or just plain weird, you know, because sometimes we judge people in these social environments. So your, your communication can be improved to where you can function in larger environments. And I, like I said, I don't think it has to be a stage for profit. But anytime we improve our face-to-face -face communication, it will have an, an impact on our wallet. Because if we're better communicators at work, even through an email, if we're better at sending an email, then we're going to be promoted more likely than somebody who's just not. Absolutely. So, um, and I, I, I agree with that, um, all the, like pretty much all the way through. And I know um, for me, um, I grew up introverted. Mm -hmm. Like that's my, my natural inclination is spending time around people will wear me out. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember in high school thinking to myself that like if I ever wanted to have influence, I needed to learn how to talk to people. Mm -hmm. um, so I started like taking notes and trying to get better at it. And over the course of the last 20 years, I've gotten pretty good at it. Mm -hmm. So I think it is something that you can hone, even if it's not a natural, uh, a natural skill. Um, but, uh, you know, to, to get to the point where like, if you're like me and wanting to speak on stages and like, I went through preacher training and stuff like that, and I've spoken in front of thousands of people. I don't think most people want to do that, but I'm, you know, I'm a crazy person. Right. So, <laughs> Which, you know, so for I, for people like us, the, the beauty of the fact that most people don't want to do that is the people who do and are good at it get paid very well. And so because yeah. it scares the heck out of most people and most people is their number one fear is public speaking. Those of us that do it for a living, you know, make a good living at it. And that's, you know, the truth yeah, same is true with anything. I, I can't do heart surgery, you know, but the, yeah, absolutely. The people that do heart surgery get paid a lot of money and they should because not everybody can do that. They say uh, the fear of public speaking is feared worse than death by something like 60% of the population. Which yeah. Is yeah. Insane. And so, so the old Seinfeld joke is so that at a funeral, most people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. You know, that's, that's yeah. what Jerry says about that. So. I have, uh, I have for whatever reason been given the totem in my family as speaker for the dead. And every time we've had someone pass away in the family, they're like, you're the one who gives the eulogy because you do yeah. it so well. I'm yeah. like, thanks. That's the torch I wanted. That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the, the other side of a superpower is the fatal flaw. And I mm -hmm. want to think about this in terms of growing your business, right? When it comes to to getting speaking career or speaking engagements or working with clients, managing the actual like day-to-day -day of your business, mm -hmm. you know, Superman has his kryptonite. Right. What is it that has held you back growing your business and managing it well? Um, and how have you worked on that to improve it for other people who might struggle with something similar? It's a good question. And it's something that I've really recently been digging into. And so the, the answer is pretty clear to me. And it, it's going to sound weird based on our earlier conversations. My kryptonite has kind of cropped up being social media. I love it. I'm good at it. I teach people about it, but it sucks more time off my day than anything else I do. I get sucked into the Facebook vortex where I start looking for conversations to engage in because I'm very extroverted. And so social media is made for a guy like me that wants to connect with a lot of people. Yeah. But at the same time, 
it keeps me from the money-making part of my job. And, and I say that with knowing that social media is part of my platform and it's part of what allows me to do what I do. You know, I connect with clients and customers alike on social media. But I also, when there's a hard task to be done, I find myself on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram and I'm not getting done the work that I need to get done. And so my ability to communicate through social media can be used to help a lot of people, but it can also be used as a very convenient distraction from the real work that I need to get done that day. So how have you been working on, on managing that and improving that for your business? So I have started kind of scheduling my social media time and using it in more concentrated doses instead of wasting a ton of time, you know, an hour at a time on, on social media. I set my own screen time on my phone for social media. I get yeah. two hours. You know, I give my daughter two hours, my 14 year old two hours because the, the brain research says past two hours of social media, especially for teenagers is when you start seeing the anxiety and depression. And that came out from the American Academy of Pediatrics. So if those doctors have started figuring this out and saying two hours is enough, then my phone sends me a reminder when I'm approaching the two hour threshold. Now, that being said, I can override mine with one or two button clicks. She cannot, she has to request more screen time from me. Yeah. But for me, it's just a reminder saying, hey, you've wasted enough time on this right now. Let's get busy on some real work. And you know, most days I don't reach that two hour mark. But also when I'm sitting down at my iMac working on a presentation or emailing clients, it's not uncommon to have the Facebook tab open. And when a notification pops up on there, I jump right over there and see what's happening. And I've started minimizing or closing that window and just keeping open the windows that I need open so that I'm not as distracted. Uh, social media on my phone doesn't give me push notifications that are audible. They just show up on the phone next time I pick it up. So I'm not completely distracted by audible notifications coming through. So you just kind of find ways to throttle that back so that you can get the deep work done. Have you thought about doing things with social media too, like having specific goals with your social media? Like, like I'm, I'm looking to either connect with certain people or engage in certain types of conversations and using it like a, um, like specific things that you want to accomplish in your business instead of just being a time suck where it's like, you know, actual constructive things like, Hey, if I'm going to go on Instagram, I'm looking for, yeah, I don't use Instagram much, but you know, mm -hmm. I'm looking to connect with three or four different people. I want to engage in a couple of different conversations and that's, it's like a, it's like a task list. Have you thought about that at all? Or is it something you've been. I haven't honestly, and it's, it's a great idea. And it's something I will look into. I, for, Facebook in particular, one of the things that I have on there is a, a Facebook page called Side Gig, and it's basically a page of people designed to support other people who are growing or launching a side hustle, a side gig. Uh, and I connect on there at least once a day, and sometimes I'll throw a challenge out, ask a question uh, to try to connect and build that community because, you know, the problem with social media, as much as I love it, is it's our highlight reel. And John Acuff always says, you know, it allows us to compare our behind the scenes to someone else's highlight reel. And so the side gig community being a private Facebook group allows people to just say things like, you know what, today I tied my shoes and that's really all I've accomplished today. And other people chime in and say, been there, done that. This is what I did. Or 
here's a video that is just a rough draft. Could you look at it? Give me your feedback. Tell me what you think. It's not a video I would share with my Facebook community, but it's one that I can share with 300 plus of my closest side gig members and get some feedback. So it's kind of an uncurated type of, of thing. You know, I know you're not very familiar with Instagram. Most teenagers have on Instagram what they call a spam account, which is linked mm -hmm. loosely to them. And I love people's spam accounts because it is the real unfiltered them. You yeah. Know, most 14, 15 year olds, when they're posting something on their real Instagram, they'll take two, three hours of filter work, finding the right quote on Pinterest, crowdsourcing it to their friends. They'll say, these are the things I'm, the captions I'm thinking about using. And it, it's a process. The spam. It's crazy is, to me. The spam is here's a shot of me without makeup with my friends doing something stupid. And it's a real snapshot of their life. Uh, and somewhere between spam and the real Instagram is the real person. Uh, and so yeah. you know, the side gig community is just a place to be real without the whole world watching. What, what's interesting to me is I've, I've, I've read some stuff on that whole phenomenon, particularly um, mm -hmm. that Instagram and Facebook and groups and, um, you know, TikTok and Snapchat, like the reason things are growing and picking up with different mm -hmm. generations are like, uh, it's different, right? So um, our generation, our parents' generation um, tend to like Facebook and Facebook's newsfeed mm -hmm. because of, um, and, and I don't know how true this is, but this, so this is from outside sources because we used to take pictures and save them in photo albums. Mm -hmm. And then when people would come over, we'd show them to people. Yes. So like the whole timeline idea and like having a newsfeed is very appealing to us and our generation and the generation before us um, because it's like all the stuff that we would have done in an analog world, just like digital and connected to everyone immediately. Mm -hmm. um, but like the younger generation, the you know older millennial generation and the generation Z tend to not care as much, right? Because that's always been a thing. And as far as they're right. concerned, everything they ever do always is always available, right? right. Um, mm -hmm. So they have a different like mentality with it. So things like Instagram, and Snapchat and TikTok and whatnot, where it's like they're interested in sharing moments, like live moments right now with other mm -hmm. people, with mm -hmm. either their group of friends or people that are farther away from them. Mm -hmm. um, and it's more like living together digitally instead of having a chronological or having like a, an album of their life because they don't right. care, right? Because right. everything's always recorded. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's just interesting to see how, how that um, interacts, which is probably one of the reasons why I tend to use Facebook more than Instagram. Right. Um, just because, you know, generationally it fits better with mm -hmm. the way I think about the world. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same token, you still need to understand how other people are using those things, especially as someone who's, you know, a communicator or a digital marketer, like where the strengths are and why people are using them. Um, so it's really, it's really fascinating. And I think this curated aspect of social media is what has allowed Snapchat to gain some purchases because they don't stick around unless you want them to uh, as a story for, you know, 24 hours. They don't, you know, Snapchat is here and gone, but the problem is our students, and one of the things I tell them in the assembly is they actually believe that their Snap is deleted. And I tell them, I can take your phone to our state crime lab, plug it up to a computer, and within five minutes recover almost every snap you've sent or received. Because they're not deleted, they're mm -hmm. still on the device, they're saved on the device, they just can't see them. 
And so they believe once it's gone, it'll never show back up again. But about four years ago, Snapchat released uh, that they had been hacked and that somebody had been recording every snap ever sent or received and was threatening to make it searchable as a, as a database by username, which to me screams online piracy. They, they'd been, they had somebody that had pirated their stuff, was wanting paid, and the fact that it went away tells me that probably Snapchat paid them, got access back to their servers and secured everything back down again. But I tell students mm -hmm. sometimes about that because anything you put on the world wide web, the world can potentially see. And we have to use it through that filter. You know, I tell them you could be yeah. text messaging a friend and you could say something about another friend and they can screenshot that text and either upload it to Instagram or send it to that other friend. And, you know, we're creating yeah. a record through the World Wide Web. So let's use it responsibly and let's use that as a filter that before I send this snap, before I send this post, this is the World Wide Web. And would I be okay if the world saw this? Yeah, that's one of the, I actually say that exact same thing to my son on a regular basis. And I was like, mm -hmm. if you, if you say it on, say it anywhere on any digital device in any way, <laughs> yes. the whole world is capable of knowing about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, and, and, you know, if you don't want grandma to see it. That's exactly right. <laughs> yep. Grandma's uh, right. a great filter. Uh, that was a great filter. Like if you don't want grandma to see your dick pics, don't be taking them and send them to people. Exactly. Miss Miss Violet was a lady who lived across the street from my mom until a couple of years ago. And she was a hundred years old, lived in a house by herself. And I was over there one day and I look in the corner and her computer was on and Facebook was pulled up. And I said, Miss Violet, I said, has your great grandkids been over here on Facebook? Cause when you're a hundred, your great grandkids are like 40 ish. And yeah. uh, she says, no. I said, well, Facebook is pulled up. She said, honey, that's my Facebook account. And so then my mind is blown. This lady's 100 years old. She has a Facebook account. So I said, Violet, why do you have a Facebook account? And she said, because I live by myself. It allows me to see pictures of my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, hear updates about their day. She goes, it's like I don't live by myself anymore. And then I asked her, I said, yeah. have you ever seen something that one of your family members posted you didn't like? She's like, oh, yeah. I said, what'd you do? She goes, next time they came to visit, I grabbed them by an ear and I walked them to the couch and set them down and we had a talk. And I, I'll never forget the fact <laughs> that she was policing me at a hundred years old for her That's family. Awesome. And I don't want Miss Violet grabbing my ear. Uh, you know, we just, every time we post, we need to think, you know, if our grandparents saw this, if our pastor saw this, if our boss saw this, you know, how many people have lost their jobs because they tweeted from their personal account when there really is no break anymore between your personal account and your work account. It's a, a question of integrity. Yeah. And you have to, uh, um, and nowadays, like yeah, my, my understanding, I haven't been in the job market for a long time, mm -hmm. um, but that, that potential interviews, they'll actually look at your social media, your personal stuff and see what you do on the weekends. Absolutely. Right? Are you the kind of, kind of guy who's partying and doing drugs and getting drunk? Cause mm -hmm. As far as they're concerned, that reflects on their reputation for the type of people that they're hiring. It does. And, and universities are checking applicants, student applicants, a social media, because let's think from their perspective, if I get on your Instagram and it shows you're getting drunk every weekend while you live at home with your parents, why would I want you living in my dorm 
unsupervised so that when you overdose on alcohol, it says university of whatever freshman overdoses on alcohol. That's publicity I don't need for my university. So I'm going to pass on you. Um, yeah. It's not an invasion. It's crazy, right? It's kind of, yeah, because you put it out publicly on the world. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, it's so crazy. We live in we live in a in a in a insane world, um, and it's. I don't I don't think we've even come to terms with the uh, um, the impact that all this stuff is having, um, mm-hmm. and how it's just sort of changing the social fabric of our world. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we're just figuring it out as we go along, which is you know the same thing every generation before us is doing. Right. Yes. You know, when it was the phone and radio and television and whatnot, it's just happening faster now yes. and at a, at a larger degree. Um, yes. So it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about um, your common enemy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so common enemy, I like to think of this in terms of your clients. Right. So you have um, and maybe particularly for you, the corporate clients that you work with. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that when you when they hire you on and bring you on to teach communication or teach the hostage negotiation, mm-hmm. um, there's probably something that you have that you run into regularly, right? Something that's holding holding them back as an organization or holding them back from understanding and getting really great results from the things that you teach them. Something that you sort of have fight against constantly. What what is that? And if you could wave magic wand and just remove it, so you know that you get much greater results as an organization, what would that what would that thing be? To me, the biggest thing that gets in the way of communication from a corporate standpoint is fear. Uh, They're afraid of how their communication is going to be perceived. And so because of that fear, they end up shutting down communication, which plays into what they're most afraid of, which is fear. When communication shuts down in an organization, everybody freaks out because everybody is trying to piece together why in the world what is so bad that we've shut down communication? You know, anytime now is that is that inter internal communication communication from the organization to their customers, like outside? Both, both. It, it, from an employee standpoint, if my boss is no longer talking to me or about a topic that I know is coming up, I start freaking out. If I'm a customer of a business and they have. St- shut down communications and I can't get through or they won't talk to me or they're no longer sending me emails, I start thinking that this business must be going under when maybe they're just afraid of whatever. Maybe they messed up. Newsflash, everybody messes up every day. And if we don't be, if we're not the ones to tell the story, then someone will step in and tell that story. From a communication standpoint, when I was the public information officer, I would always call this the redneck report, because if we weren't as a police department giving the information to the media, they had to run the story anyways. So they would go interview the guy that's sitting on his front porch without a shirt on. He can't be bothered to put his shirt on to be interviewed on the news, but yet he's seen the whole thing and he'll tell them all about it, even though maybe he wasn't even outside at the time. And now as a police department, when we start releasing information, we have to undo that. You know, we have to undo that lie that's already been told. You know, Ferguson, Missouri was a hot mess when that first broke, when, when that shooting happened and the riots happened. And largely because, in my opinion, the police department waited 24 hours before they said anything. Because in the police world, we used to be afraid of tampering a jury or the, you know, that kind of stuff. 
well, what we found is the jury was already tampered for 24 hours with misinformation. And so, yeah, you can't say yeah. everything when, when something messes up at your company, you can't say everything, but you can absolutely say something. I mean, I've done five minute interviews for the police department with the news over a juvenile situation in a school that we're not legally allowed to talk about. And so when I'm on the news, I'm saying things like, we take threats to our school very seriously. We investigate every threat and we make sure we get to the bottom of it. We make sure our students are safe every day in our schools. I never once mentioned what was happening, who was the suspect, how serious it was. I just was the one giving the story to the news. And I would tell them, as soon as we're able to tell you more, we will. But this is an active investigation and we're working on it. And that tells the average citizen, hey, the police department is on top of this. They're working this. So let's put that in the corporate world. You know, our product messes up or our system shuts down or something. We've got to get out there immediately and say, we're experiencing some issues. This is embarrassing. And so we have every resource we have allocated to fixing this. And as soon as it's fixing, we will do everything we can to make this up to our clients. I don't have to tell you what happened or whose fault it is. I don't have to blame anybody, but I do need to be out there saying, you know what? we've really messed up and we're fixing it and we're sorry instead of yeah. shutting down communication. And then the customers are the ones giving the story about my company because the company is no longer talking and the yeah. customers, when things shut down are not happy customers. And so yeah. they're getting the story from somebody who doesn't even know what happened, but they're really pissed off about it. And so they're yeah. giving a good interview because nothing, nothing leads like somebody who's really angry, uh, and, but they're not giving what I want them to be giving. And so as a company, fear cannot keep us from communicating ever. And what's interesting too is your, your existing customers are probably some of the most forgiving people. Yes. Right? And, and so if you, if you take the time to say, hey, like immediately something has gone wrong, we're working on it, they will give you the benefit of the doubt. And if, you're, if you are curious about that. Think about how that's happened in your life with your, with the companies that you've worked with, right? I got a couple mm -hmm. of companies that are big time companies. Like we work with, I work with a hosting company, right? I got a lot mm -hmm. of client websites that are hosted um, and they have a server status page and everything. And like when something happened, um, what was it? Uh, not last October, but the October before that, there was a big DDoS attack that was like an international attack from China or Russia or something like that on the American internet. Mm -hmm. Um, and it shut down like half of the internet in the US, like all across the Eastern seaboard. Um, and it was just, it was just humongous DDoS attack that brought down a lot of big companies' websites, Facebook and Amazon, and Apple, a lot of my clients' websites, you know, they're smaller, they're smaller time people, right? But you know, they get 100 or 200 or 300 visitors a day or a thousand visitors a day, or they're spending money on advertising and spending a couple of grand a day on advertising. Their websites going down isn't a good thing. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so, so our uh, our our the web host um, immediately reached out to everyone who had had their stuff, and was like, "Hey, we're under attack right now. Here's what's going on. Here's what we're doing to defend it. Here's how we're going to make sure everything goes back up. We expect to have this resolved in within you know two to three hours. Um, mm -hmm. If things go as planned, right? It might take longer than that. It might be up to ten hours." What that gave me, it was like, okay, I know these guys are handling it. I know what the problem is. Um, I know it's not something I can do anything about. Yep. So I could just take their stuff and let all of my clients know, 
Um, and like, I, I wasn't even upset about it, even though all of my stuff was, was down. Right. right. And I had to go and interface with all of my clients about that. Um, and it's, it's amazing how quickly just communicating makes all, it makes it better, even though the problem is still happening. Yeah. And, and best case scenario is they, they notified you with this before you even knew there was a problem in a, in a, you know, from their standpoint, they're so quick with communicating that they actually are the ones that informed you there was a problem. Cause we don't check our websites every minute of every day. You know, when it's down, we don't, you know, we don't know necessarily until somebody lets yeah. us know. Uh, and you know, for you, for, as a customer, you know, there was probably some security that they didn't do that allowed some of this attack, but you're not even mad because they're like, we're aware we're fixing it and we're going forward. There was a, a survey that came out mm -hmm. not too long ago of hotels. And it was so interesting to me because they surveyed people that stayed in hotels and they found if you stayed in a hotel and never had a single problem while you were there, the stay went like you expected. You rated it at about a seven. If you stayed at a hotel, had a problem that wasn't corrected, you were five and below. But if you stayed there, had a problem, and it was corrected by the hotel, you'd rate them about an eight or a nine. Meaning, if you had a problem that was fixed, you got a better rating than the people who never had a problem in the first place. And so it just shows that responsiveness is huge, that we, I don't expect anybody I work with to be perfect, but I expect them to admit when they mess up and then do everything they can to fix what they've messed up. And then I'm not even mad. I'm like, good job yeah. for you. Cause I appreciate business. And I know that they learned something when they messed up with me and, you know, they apologize, they fixed it, you know, and they go on about their business. So actually one of the things I coach my clients on with online reviews is uh, respond to every one of them, mm -hmm. um, especially the bad reviews, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't respond to the bad reviews because, I mean, you do want to resolve things with that customer. The reason right. you respond to a bad review in a positive light and make sure, you know, it's publicly available that, you know, here's, here's how we would like to resolve this. Here's where you can reach out to resolve this um, is, is for the other people who are going to come and see, you know, that, that this is how, you know, things go down. And it's like your red flags for consumers are when you've got all five-star reviews mm -hmm. or when you've got all one-star reviews, right? right? If you've got like 80% great reviews and a couple of bad reviews that have like, here's how we tried to resolve it to mm -hmm. that, that's reality, right? Mm -hmm. And people understand that. Mm -hmm. um, so you just have to have to work in that, in that world and really, you know, respond well to that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So next thing I want to talk about is, uh, is your driving force, right? Spider-Man fights to save New York, Batman fights to save Gotham, or Google fights to categorize all the world's information for us, right? What is the thing that you fight for, right? If you're fighting against fear and communication, what's the thing that you fight for? Um, I think I just fight for honestness and openness, you know, honesty and openness, because in today's digital world, especially, um, fake is kind of what people think, but the default, but it's the default. People assume it's fake. So when you're real, when you're honest, when you're open, you stand out. Uh, you know, Apple support is a great example of this. I have never called Apple support that they hasn't been a regular human being who was sitting at their house. You might even hear kids in the background 
And when, the, when I have an issue and I say, well, this just happened to my laptop and they say things like, that really sucks, man. I'm sorry that happened. We're going to fix this. Like they admit that sucks. <laughs> They're using my language. They're like, man, I'm sorry that happened. We're going to fix this and we're going to make sure you're good to go by the time you leave here. Instead of the people that I talk to where you know, you're calling the cable company or something and someone's typing into the keyboard and they're reading a script to you. I, I don't feel served by that because you're not being authentic with me. Be real with me, be open with me, yeah. be honest with me, and I will do business with you every day. Yeah, and I've, one of the things I've noticed too in uh, like in our space, right, in the uh, podcasting and in creating uh, YouTube videos and, you know, whatever it is where we're communicating to a larger audience of people that the stuff that gets engaged with the most is, is, uh, is very honest, right? It, it's not like it has no production value, but once you, there, there's a, there's a production value beyond which you get that people no longer care. They're like, oh, now you're no longer authentic. Right. Right. Um, and, and there's like, your camera should probably be steady. You should probably have good audio. Your face should be lit up well. But like beyond that, once you start getting into like, it looks like you have a million dollar budget for all of your videos, people are just shutting you off, Yeah. right? Because that's not yep. what they want. Yep. They want to see you. They want to hear your kids in the background a little bit maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, right, there's, yep. there's, some, there's some authenticity that, uh, that is really getting people to, uh, to, to, you know, I, I, that's what people are really getting into now, nowadays. Mm -hmm. I think there's, um, it's, it's almost like a backlash, I think, of the last 40 or 50 years of advertising and marketing and dealing with mm -hmm. companies. And you realize that companies don't exist. It's just a group of people. And right. we want to deal with the people who run the company, yeah. right? And deal with human beings. Yeah, um, the, the so, famous phrase is people don't leave companies, people leave people. Uh, and mm -hmm. the more, the more human we are, the less likely they'll leave. Yeah. And, and, and um, that, that and I, said, you know, if they do leave, if it's somebody that gripes and complains and makes my life miserable from a customer standpoint, if they do leave, I'm not chasing them. You know, those aren't my people. Those one-star review people that I can't ever make happy. You know, I'm going to miss you. Not really you know, you should probably go somewhere. I would never sell it. Not at all. That, but I'm not going to chase them either. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to beat myself up over that one star review because some people are just grumpy. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like, you know, to your point, Apple's a great model for that, right? Everything mm -hmm. from their big corporate presentations they do, they just did their big one for their iPhone. Mm -hmm. They bring out people and you listen to people tell stories. Yeah. And their marketing is almost always stories of their customers, right? Yeah. I think they're, yeah, the ad they did this last, this last time that got a whole bunch of, uh, of, of play and stuff in the media was, you know, the Apple watch saving people's lives. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, yeah. and changing it. It's like, cause they get it, they get, yeah. they get it that it's, it's about, it's about people. Um, so it's really fascinating mm -hmm. to, uh, to see how, you know, the preponderance of communication we have available to us and what's coming back down to what the, the, you know, when you have access to all the communication abilities in the world, the ability to tell a story, you know, about, you know, you one to one to another and talk to each other is really, it's the key that holds yes. it all together. Absolutely. 
So I'm going to move on. I've got a couple more questions here in the interview. Um, this one should be fairly simple. It's your hero's tool belt, right? You know, maybe you have a big magical hammer like Thor or one of the things I say re regularly on the show, or maybe you have a bulletproof vest like your neighborhood police officer, which I'm sure you've <laughs> actually probably used at some point. Yes. <laughs> um, or, or maybe you just really love how Evernote helps you organize your thoughts or how you build killer slides in Keynote or something like that. What are some of the actual like tools you use to make your business go round? It's a great question. I, I, you know, I facilitate a mastermind as part of what I do, but I'm also a member of a paid mastermind. And a mastermind to me is a place where we, you know, people talk about you work from home now, that must be awesome. It is great. And I love it. But at the same time, there's a dark side to that too, meaning it's me and my dog pretty much all day, every day. He doesn't really care what I do as long as I feed him and let him out. He doesn't bounce ideas off of me. I don't bounce ideas off of him. He doesn't know what I accomplished during a day. He doesn't care. But I he guess- might bounce a ball for him, but that's about it. Maybe, maybe. He, he's pretty lazy, so not much of that. But <laughs> the mastermind gives me a group of, of coworkers, a group of, of like an executive board where every week when I meet with them, they're going to ask me, you know, what'd you do this week? What'd you accomplish? And at the end of the call, it's what are you going to be working on? What do you need to get done between now and next week? What are your goals? And just having those people there that are sharing ideas that are, you know, the people that would be around the water cooler of a normal business that's generating ideas, brainstorming, holding each other accountable, you know, checking in on your family. That's what the mastermind becomes. And it's not one single person, it's the group dynamic that allows that to happen. And so the mastermind to me, even though I facilitate one, the reason I'm a paid member mm -hmm. of one is because I approach the one that I'm a facilitator for differently. I produce content, I bring content to it, I make sure people are participating, I'm tracking everybody else's goals. The one that I'm a paid member of, man, I just show up and I connect with people there and I, I gain, I pull from that mastermind instead of pushing into it like the one that I facilitate. So the mastermind is a yeah. big thing. That's, um, I actually have a similar one that, uh, that I'm involved in. Um, it's the same thing for me, right? It's my, um, I call them my, uh, my entrepreneurial brothers and sisters, right? You know, yes. sit around at the dinner table and tell each other, you know, all the things that you did wrong at school today, yes. right? Um, that kind of thing. And, yep. you know, we've got, got, pe got people in that group that are farther ahead than me, people that are, you know, just a little bit behind me or something like that in terms of like where we're going and how we're getting there. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one of the ladies in that group, I tell her all the time, she's like my, she's my, uh, my big sister CEO. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, because she's, you know, she's just a little further down the path. And every time I, I come into problem, I'm like, Hey, I don't know what to do here with my employee or I don't know what to do with the, you know, this thing here. And she'll, you know, I've got someone I can bounce ideas off of and talk to. Um, and it's been, um, my business probably grown more since getting into a mastermind like that than it has in the entire 10 years previously. Yeah. Um, I agree. So yeah. huge, huge tool. If you're listening to this and you don't have a mastermind, definitely find a group of people that, uh, that you can do that with. Do you have a recommendation for what to look for if you're looking for that kind of mastermind for your business? Some you know, listening to this. Yeah, I think that to me, you know, there are a lot of free masterminds and there are masterminds that you'll pay $50,000 a year to be a member of. I, I don't think, you know, it just depends on what you're looking for. To me, the free mastermind, if something doesn't cost me money, I don't take it seriously and I don't really apply myself to it. But if I'm paying for something, 
then I'm going to make sure that I'm there at each meeting. I'm going to make sure I participate. I'm going to take notes. I'm going to get things done because I've paid to be here. And it just, to me, whether, you know, whether you're paying $50,000 a year or you're paying $1,200 a year for $100 a month, whatever it is you're paying, if you have skin in the game, you come at it differently. Uh, I would, like you said, have people who are slightly ahead of me and slightly behind me in the group. You don't want somebody who's making multiple seven figures when you're just starting out because that person's going to frustrate you. They're not going to necessarily remember what it was like to be starting out. You're going to frustrate them. And so, you know, having people that are really similar to where you are in life is, is a good thing to look for as well. Yeah. And what's interesting too, is like one of the things I've noticed is whether or not you have skin in the game, um, you know, and particularly if you do have skin in the game to um, realize that the skin in the game is just for you, mm -hmm. right. It's to get you to show up, but you have to treat it like, a family dinner, right? These are real people who have real problems and you have to be there as much for them as they are for you, right? Like, you know, treat it like blood, Correct. Yeah. Um, which is you have to, you have to sort of mentally separate that from like, this isn't just a business transaction. It's also like, it's like a life thing. Yes. Absolutely. So I don't know how to say that clearly, but hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> no, I mean, that's true. You, if you go into it looking to get something out of it, then I think you're coming at it the wrong way. If you go into it looking to contribute, because when I was in the D.A.R.E. classroom, what I loved was when a, a higher functioning student would naturally partner with a lower functioning student and they would help them. The reason I loved it is because if they're higher functioning, there's a good chance they're getting bored in the classroom. Uh, and when they start teaching it to somebody else, they learn it in a new way. It kicks their level of thinking up to a higher level and their peer helping somebody else get the content that I can't help each individual student who might be struggling with the content. And so anytime you're teaching somebody, you're learning it in a new way. And so if you bring that to a mastermind and you say, I'm going to come and I'm going to not look to get from this, but look to give to it, you can't help but get in the process. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's like my, uh, one of the things we do with our homeschool with the kids, right? My oldest teaches the youngest and, you know, and teaches the, uh, the younger ones as um, on things that they're learning. Like my, my five-year-old right now is learning to read and we're having mm -hmm. my older one sit down and actually like do the reading practice with her mm -hmm. um, because A, he needs reading practice and B, the more he teaches, the better he gets at it himself. That's exactly um, right. Yeah. yeah. And so we're, we're doing that whenever we can um, and whenever it makes sense to um, mm -hmm. and all the way down to like right now, my, my five-year-old is teaching my three-year-old her colors. Mm -hmm. Right. And she's in the process of learning how to write and spell her colors. So in the process, she's sitting down with a three-year-old and they're like, you know, this one's blue and she's going to write it out and they're going to color it blue together and whatnot. So they're, mm -hmm. they're playing together. Um, and it turns it for them. It's, it's now it's a game instead of just school. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting how like those kind of things, they apply all the way up into, you know, multi-million dollar masterminds. <laughs> absolutely. Yep. <laughs> right. Yes. So, you know, find yeah. someone, someone in the group who you can, you can help them, help them with their colors and find someone who can help you learn to read like that kind of thing. That's, yeah. that's what you're looking for in that space. Yep. The usual will be right back. Are you tired of trying to write webinars that don't consistently convert? How would you like to have a webinar that effortlessly created sales in your online business? You can't. Introducing the Webinar Alchemy Workshop. Webinar Alchemy Workshop is an online masterclass that will help you write incredibly persuasive webinars for your online courses quickly and easily. 
Using what you learn in this class, you can build a webinar that educates your entire audience while still creating sales. For a limited time, you can purchase this masterclass for only $7, and you'll get the exact framework I've personally used to help my clients sell more than a million dollars worth of online coaching and training just over the last year. Simply text the word ALCHEMY, A-L-C-H-E-M-Y, to 444-999, and I'll send you all the details. The music is by Purple Planet Music. Visit www.purple-planet.com. And now, back to the show. I'm going to talk a little bit about your own personal heroes, right? Frodo had Gandalf. Luke had Obi-Wan Kenobi, Robert Kiyosaki had his, uh, his rich dad. Who were some of your heroes? Were they real-life mentors? Were they speakers or authors, peers who were just a few years ahead of you? And how important were they to what you've accomplished so far in your speaking career? You know, as a, as a speaker, there's a few people that I kind of uh, look to for, for guidance. Uh, you know, one of them that my wife, you know, uh, jokingly calls kind of my man crush is uh, John Acuff. Uh, read everything the guy's ever nice. written, attended two or three of his conferences, uh, took his online courses. And because he just, he's so relatable to me. He's a dad with two daughters. You know, he's, uh, he's further down the road that I'm trying to travel. And, you know, with that being said, when I took one of his online courses, he, um, they got me to like 30 minute calls with him as part of this course. And when I was talking to him about speaking on one of these calls, he said, listen, I'm going to be in Louisville, Kentucky, like next week. He said, how close is that to you? I said, I can be there in 90 minutes. He said, well, I'm speaking at 10 that morning. If you want to meet for coffee, I'd love to meet with you. So he and I sat for like an hour at his hotel, had coffee. And uh, he then invited me to come to his speaking engagement for a group of uh, oral hygienists. And I don't know why he was speaking to oral hygienists. He speaks to everybody. But you know, he was, he said, if you want to stick around, you can be my guest to this. And then we can talk afterwards again. Well, unfortunately, my oldest daughter was getting ready to graduate high school. And we had a party at our house that day. And I said, I've got to get back home. Family's got to come first. But the reason I bring that story up is, you know, he's somebody who would probably know my name if he heard it. Uh, but we're not friends, friends. But he took time out of his day when he could have been sitting in his room getting ready for his talk. Instead, he sat in the lobby of his hotel and drank coffee with somebody who he saw an opportunity to help for free because I didn't pay him for that time. And that's what I want to do with my business. I want to help people and I want to serve people. And I just want people to, to be comfortable being around me. And because when that happens, when he comes out with another book or another course, I'm going to buy it. Cause he's a regular dude who's real and authentic, everything we've talked about. And I just connect well with him. And I want people to connect with me in such a way that they feel like I'm being authentic. And that when I do come out with a book or a product that they're one of the first people in line. Um, absolutely. I've got people like that in a, in my life too. One of the guys that I'm in, actually in a mastermind with now, you know, I spent years buying everything he put out and um, communicating with him and, you know, just letting him know my successes I had with his products and, um, eventually turned about like we're in a mastermind together now, one of his masterminds, and mm -hmm. he's become a client of, client of mine, right? Um, mm -hmm. And we actually exchange services back and forth. So it's cool to have people like that that uh, that are in your life. Yeah. So last thing I want to do here on the show is uh, is you know sort of bring it home for our listeners. Talk about your guiding principles. Whether the top one or two principles or actions that you use regularly, like on a daily basis, that you think contribute to the success and influence that you enjoy today, maybe something you wish you'd known when you started out in your current career. 
you know, for me, one of the guiding principles of my business, and it sounds funny to say it's my business, but it's always been family comes first. Uh, and I know that, you know, enough of your story to know that's kind of your, your story as well, that your family is very important to what you do. But, you know, it can't just be something we talk about. When I worked for the police department, when I supervised officers, they knew if there was an issue at home, that's where they needed to be. And we'll cover for you. We'll make things happen. We'll get you there because family comes first. When, when their kids were graduating high school, I supervised school resource officers. So they worked every high school graduation, but if they had a kid walking across the stage, they were in the audience, not in uniform. They were just a dad and we picked up the slack. And now that I work for myself, when I work for myself as an entrepreneur and I set my own schedule, you know, family has to come first. And there are times where that gets tested. Uh, I got accepted to speak at the National Conference on Bullying, which in my world, that's a, that's a really big deal. It was in Orlando, Florida. When they emailed me and said, hey, you've been selected. Here's your next step is what you need to do is get booked. It was the same night as my youngest daughter's eighth grade volleyball night where she would walk across the floor with her parents, be introduced and you know all of the fanfare of your final home game as an eighth grader. And I had to look at the business and say, the business could really use the exposure that a national conference would give me because these people that are attending are the ones who would book me to come to their schools. But at the same time, she's only an eighth grader mm -hmm. walking across the court one time. And so I had to email them and say, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to pass. You know, please keep me in mind for their future ones. And they said, we understand, but you'll have to reapply. And so you just have to have to have times like that where you say, if the business closes down today, the family is still here. And I want to, you know, as I've got a daughter in college, it becomes very real. You, your time with them is finite. And, and there's going to come a time very soon where it's just my wife and I, and, you know, I, I'm looking forward to that day, but that will also allow us some more flexibility. You know, John Acuff's thing he's yeah. pushing right now is he's five years from being an empty nester. And he said his wife, Jenny, will travel with him a lot when he's an empty nester. He said, but right now we're apart. And that's kind of where we are. You know, my wife plans on doing a lot of traveling with me when our youngest graduates in four years. And right now yeah. it's a season where family has to take care of family. And I can't always go and do all the things I want to do which is why I have started coaching and podcasting and all of the things that I can do from home. Uh, because speaking is great, but speaking is hard to scale because it requires travel. Yeah. And I don't want to be on the road all day, every day. Yeah. We, uh, we have some similar things going on. We travel full time, right? We're actually, I'm in an RV right now. My kids are up front, but the, uh, um, to the point of like, you don't have much time with them. Like we just had our fourth kid and she is six months old now. And we've decided that's probably, that's the last kid we're going to have. So we've gotten mm -hmm. like, we can't have any more kids at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and every time she hits a milestone, like it keeps coming out of my head. I'm like, Oh, this is the last time we're going to get to see this or enjoy this. Right. It's going to like, yeah. the, the next time that we get to have this is going to be with grandchildren. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's probably a good 20 years down the road. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe sooner than that, depending on how responsible my, my uh, oldest one is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, like that's, it, it's a, it's, it's part of, part of life is that you don't have a lot of times. So you really have to decide what your priorities are and mm -hmm. where you want to put that time. And I know like 10 years ago, how I started my business. One of the things I told my wife 
but it was like, I, I particularly, I want to be capable of having lunch with my kids every day, right? And it was particularly lunch because, you know, a lot of dads get the opportunity to have breakfast and or dinner with their kids, but not, very few get to have lunch with their kids on a regular right. basis. Right. And, um, and at this point, 10 years into my business, I can say, my, like, if I have a business thing that happens over lunch, which has happened a number of times, mm -hmm. you know, over the last couple of years, my kids are like, whoa, that's weird. Like dad's not home for lunch kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, cause I've, I've worked from home. I'm always here for that. Um, and I've, I've gotten to see every, every milestone all my kids have gone through, been home for it, um, which is, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's the reason I built my business the way that I did. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause that was the, uh, the thing that I wanted to have. So mm -hmm. I can totally get that um, idea of, you know, knowing your guiding principle of like who your family is. And I, I love that you guys in the, the police office, you know, the police department would do that. You know, mm -hmm. if your kid's walking across the stage, you're not in uniform, you're a, you're a dad yep. um, and you pick up the slack. And yep. yeah, I like, I like that. And I like thinking about that. You know, I've got, I only have a couple of staff members on my, uh, on, on my team, but you know, last week, one of them, you know, their kid was in the hospital with fever or whatnot. And I was like, you yep, know, do what you need to do, mm -hmm. you know, yep. <laughs> um, We'll, we'll figure it out. And that's, uh, that's the way I would like to, uh, you know, I want, I want all of my employees as my business grows to have that same, same mentality that their, their family and their business comes before my business. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, love it. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that basically wraps up the interview. I got one last thing I do um, on the mm -hmm. show, something really simple. I call it the hero challenge. Mm -hmm. Hero challenge is, do you have someone in your life or in your network who you think has a really cool entrepreneurial story? that you could introduce to us that you think should come on and share their story. Who are they? First names are fine. And why do you think they should come share their story on the hero show? It's a great question. And I've actually, uh, I've had this guy that immediately came to mind when you asked this, I've had him on my podcast. Uh, he's, uh, his name is Irvin and he lives in California, actually in Los Angeles. And, uh, I met Irvin through, um, a conference that we attended together, even though we didn't see each other at that conference on the Facebook page for the conference we connected. And Irvin, the reason he was on my podcast is he had every reason to, to be a victim in the world. He grew up in the inner city LA where there was gangs and drugs, and he was dealing drugs at the age of 13. You know, he lost his job as an adult and uh, couldn't get another job because he was lacking the degrees necessary. And so he just went in business for himself. He hired himself and he's out there hustling, teaching in businesses uh, with an organization he founded called Reach Leadership. And he was doing graffiti as a teenager and he's now doing graphic design, his own graphic design work. It's beautiful graphic design work. And he is somebody who by all intents and purposes should be sitting somewhere collecting a check. And instead he's out hustling every day, making connections with people, serving people. And it's just exciting to watch his business take off. <laughs> That's really cool. Thanks. So what we'll do is we'll reach out later so we can get connected with Irvin. Um, last thing is thank you so much for coming on the show, Scott. It's been really a pleasure speaking with you. Where can people find you if they want to a, listen to your podcast or if they are, you know, an organization looking to hire you for speaking, where can they find that? And then I guess more importantly, who are the, the, the right fits, right? Who should reach out and, um, and ask you, to, uh, to come speak? Yeah, great question. The podcast is the Speaking of Harvey podcast. It's on iTunes. Uh, and then people can reach me at my website, speakingofharvey.com. There's a contact Scott tab on there. They can get a hold of me directly. 
you know, the people that, that I work with mostly are schools, especially middle and high schools, public, private, doesn't matter to me. Uh, from a corporate standpoint, any type of, of sales, any type of organization that requires communication, because that's what I specialize in. Uh, I can teach active listening, things like that, that's going to make our organization more human and stand out. So sales, executive development, you know, inter-office trainings, I could do some of those. So anywhere where communication is going to be needed uh, is where I can jump in and help out. Awesome, cool. So it's uh, speakingofharvey.com where they can reach out to you. And if you're listening to the show and you are, you know, if you run a school or you need someone to come in and talk about bullying and communication, obviously Scott knows a thing or two about that. Um, or if you're running a corporate organization and want to get communication notched up, definitely take the time to reach out to Scott. It's been really fascinating to just listen to you and speak with you today. Um, so thank you for, again for coming on the show. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners before we wrap up the recording? I'm just excited to be here. I'm excited about what you're doing and I appreciate uh, you asking me to be on here. Awesome. Thank you very much. Have a good day, guys. Thanks.